The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We began last week looking at the subject of the afterlife. And I said at the beginning, the Bible has very little to say about the afterlife or heaven. So you'd think it would be a short series. You know, there's not that much to say. Um, Most of what we believe about the afterlife is speculation. So let me start this morning with a very familiar verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. Now the word secret here is satar, and it means to hide by covering, literally or figuratively. It means to be absent, keep close, conceal. So, and I think we're all aware of this, there are spiritual things that are hidden. Things that we'll never completely understand in this life. Now, we know that, I think we got that. The sad thing is that most people stop there and they don't even know the rest of the verse. All right, because the verse goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Believers, we are called to know what has been revealed. We're not going to understand the secret things. And I think we can talk about them and we can debate them and we can, you know, speculate on them, but we don't know the secret things. But we are to know what has been revealed. So let's see if we can find out What has been revealed about the afterlife? Now, I said last week that I believe, and this is my opinion, that the earthly realm is a mirror image of the heavenly realm. You know, I don't think all we have in this world that God has created, I don't think God just said, let me make something very different, different than everything. I think, you know, he based this on the world that he lives in, on the spiritual realm. And what I mean by that is, I don't think when we get to heaven, we're going to be sitting around on a cloud, dressed in white, playing harps. I think we're going to be doing things. I think we're going to be living our lives. We're going to be involved in leadership and government. I think we'll be doing things. We'll be working. We'll be serving Yahweh. So if you're getting ready to kick back and do nothing, forget about that, okay? Look at Genesis 2.15. Yahweh God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, in Genesis, we learn that the first man, Adam, was created by God and brought into Eden, the cosmic mountain. We have to understand, Eden is the temple of God. Eden is the dwelling place of Yahweh. It's the place where Yahweh holds counsel. Now, how long after Adam was created was he brought into the Garden? Well, we don't have a timeline in Scripture, but the book of Jubilees tells us, and after Adam had completed 40 days in the land where he had been created, we brought him into the Garden of Eden. Now, that's interesting that it's 40. You know, that's a very significant number in Scripture. The book of Jubilees is not the Scripture. It's a pseudepigraphal work, sometimes called the Lesser Genesis. It was written in the 2nd century B.C., and records uh, an account of the biblical history of the world from the creation to Moses. Interesting stuff. 
But I just thought that was interesting. Forty days and then he's brought into Eden. Now the verbs in this passage, work and keep, are from the Hebrew avad and shamar, respectively. And both are active verbs. And avad means to work, in any sense, by implication to serve, to enslave. Shamar means to safeguard, to preserve, to care for, and protect. So here we are in the garden of God, this perfect world that God made it, and work is necessary for man's good. God didn't call him, hey, just come and sit around and just enjoy the beauty of this place. He gave him something to do. And I think the ideal world is not one of idleness and frolic, but one of serious activity and service. God created a world which included work needing to be done, and He created man with a mission to do that work. Work is not bad, people. (laughs) I think we need a mission. We need work. We need to be involved in things. Let's look at another verse about Eden. In Genesis 3.8, it says, And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Okay, so Adam and Eve are in the garden. They sin, and then they hear the sound of God walking. I... That kind of implies a body, doesn't it? You're hearing him walking. The word here is shama, and it means to hear intelligently, often with the implication of attention. And the word sound here is from the Hebrew word kol, which means to call aloud, a voice or a sound, a bleeding, a crackling, a cry out. So they're there in the garden and they hear God. And so they hide from His presence. To me, this would imply there's somebody walking in this garden, something you can see, a form, a shape. And we know that they carried on conversations with Yahweh in this garden. He seems to have appeared as a man in the same form we're familiar with as men, okay? Now, we looked last week at Matthew 22, 23-33, where, without a doubt, Yeshua affirms the fact of the afterlife. And He talks about the resurrection, and then He said, Yahweh is not the God of the dead, He's the God of the living. And then in verse 30, He said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So, one thing that this verse tells us about the afterlife is there will be no marriage. When the physical stops, marriage stops. Now, as little as this verse tells us about the afterlife, I think it tells us more than any other verse that I'm aware of anyway. Yeshua said when they, referring to those who died under the old covenant, the this age, rise from the dead, which happened in AD 70, they don't marry, but he said they're like angels in heaven. So this tells us that after death, because we're on the other side of the resurrection at E70, we're going to be like angels. Now, the word like here is a comparative adverb. It draws a similar but not exact comparison. So we're going to be similar to angels. So the more we can learn about angels, maybe the more we have an idea of what's going to happen here. Now, the term angel <coughs> excuse me, is derived from the Hebrew word malach, which means messenger. 
Now, Strong says of Malak, from an unused root meaning to dispatch as a deputy, a messenger specifically of God. So, in general, in texts where an angel appears, the task is to convey the message or do something on behalf of Yahweh. Now, there are 213 uses of the Hebrew word malach in the Tanakh, and its Aramaic equivalent appears twice. The New American Standard Bible translates 105 of them as angel and the rest as messenger. So, in the New American Standard, Malak is more often translated as messenger, just a little over half, than angel. And they translate it as angel when they see it as a divine messenger, a supernatural being. And they translate it as messenger when they see a human messenger. Okay, we got that, right? It's about 50-50 in, uh, in the Tanakh. In the New Testament, angels from the Greek word angelos, which is found 176 times in the New American Standard, and 171 of them is translated angel. There's only five times where it's translated messenger. Now, since the focus of the text is on the message, the messenger is rarely described in detail. Thus, the divine emissary may or not be some sort of supernatural being. It has to be determined by the context. Okay, what's going on here? And normally it's pretty clear in the context. Now, there are some within preterism that believe and teach that there is no devil, there are no demons, never was, there's no supernatural beings called angels. They see all references to angels as speaking of men who are human messengers of God. Now, if you can remember what we said last week, that doesn't quite fit with some of the scriptures we read last week, and it won't fit with some we look at today. So, in a sense, these people who are saying this They're just like the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisee acknowledged them all. So I guess we're Pharisees, because we acknowledge them all, right? All right. Now listen. Is this verse implying that the Sadducees don't believe in human messengers? I mean, that would be dumb, wouldn't it? Well, they don't believe in human messengers. Wait a minute, what do you mean you don't believe in it? There they are, they're going on a they're going on an errand to take a message. So it must be, the only other choice here, it has to be referring to supernatural beings. But these people say there's no such thing as supernatural beings, so this doesn't make any sense at all, okay? I would think that what we talked about last week, again, would clearly refute this whole idea. He says we're going to be like angels in heaven. Now, is this saying that believers in the afterlife will be like messengers? Again, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's saying that we will be, and we talked about this last week, we will be like the gods. Now, it's not just here that we see this. It's not just Yeshua saying this. We looked last week at Daniel, and Daniel says believers in the afterlife will be like the angels. In Daniel 12.3, he uses astral language to speak of resurrection believers as stars or deities. We also saw that Yahweh said to Abram, so shall your descendants be, referring to the stars. And the common belief of the second temple period was that in the resurrection, 
believers would be like the gods. And they believed the gods had bodies. Now this is what scholars, what theologians call theosis. It's the deification of man. We are to take on, we're to be like the divine host, part of Yahweh's celestial family. In the afterlife, we're going to be like the angels. We're going to be like the gods. Now, we looked at different accounts in the Bibles of angels. And we did this, again, because if we're going to be like them, let's find out what we can know about angels, what the Scripture says. We saw that they always appear in bodily form as men. Are there no women angels? I don't know. There's none recorded in the Bible. Okay. Now, of course, in our society, all angels are women because everything's backwards here, right? <clears throat> you know, you ever see an angel, it's got to be a lady. <laughs> So what is this spirit body of the gods like? Well, we saw that they could be visible or invisible, right? There's an angel standing away with a sword. The donkey sees it, Balaam doesn't until his eyes are open. We saw that these angels were powerful. I mean, they could do things that we certainly can't do. We saw that these angels fight with humans and they also fight with other angels. Now, throughout the Tanakh, we see angels supernaturally helping men, all right? Like in 2 Kings 19.35, And that night, the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's a lot of dead people. In Chronicles, it says, Yahweh sent an angel... And in Kings, it says he's the angel of Yahweh. So this angel kills 185,000 Assyrian wars. That's a powerful angel. Look at a couple texts in Daniel. In Daniel 3.28, it says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. So again, we see an angel coming to the rescue, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So here we have an angel in the midst of the fiery furnace who delivers these three Hebrews. So again, we see angels, they're doing superhuman things, they're helping humans out. We see this again in Daniel 6.22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So the angel gets into a sealed lion's den without breaking the seal, and he shuts the mouths of the hungry lions, and we know the lions were hungry because if you read, know the rest of the story, when Daniel gets out, they throw the other people in there, the lions crunch them up real quickly, okay? Well, this angel keeps these lions under control, Helping men, supernaturally. Now, let's ask this question. Where did angels come from? God created them. Did He create one angel or maybe two angels and then they made a bunch of little angels? <laughs> Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heaven with all their hosts. That's angels, the hosts of heaven. And earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. So God created these angels, these angels worship Him. 
divine beings who reside in heaven. In Psalm 148, 2-5, praise Him, all His angels. So he's calling on all the angels to praise Him. Praise Him in the hostile. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. So, it seems like they were all created at once. God just created angels. Which means, there's no little angels. And every time we see an angel, it's a man, so I don't know how they would procreate in that situation, okay? So the number of angels doesn't seem to have increased or decreased since they were originally created. God just created a bunch of angels. Now, one of the biggest questions that people have regarding angels is, do we have a guardian angel? You've heard of that, I'm sure. Do we have them? Well, Psalm 91.11 says, For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now, this psalm is sometimes called the soldier's psalm because it emphasizes God's protection of His people in times of crisis. And verse 11 envisions personally appointed angelic bodyguards for His people. So Yahweh's angels will oversee everything and they're protecting the faithful. He's going to command His angels to guard you. And then there is uh, Yahweh's comment, or Yeshua's comment in uh, Matthew 18.10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see my face, a face of my Father who is in heaven. So, He says their angels here, like these angels are belonging or assigned to these people, these children. So the concept of guardian angels for nations as well as individuals really pervades Second Temple literature. All through that literature, they talk about angels, watching nations, watching individuals, guardians. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of angels, says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So angels serve the saints. So maybe we have guardian angels. It's definitely possible. Have you ever been in a situation where you swear there was something happened that wasn't normal? I mean, we hear about these. We had an experience, Kathy and I, when we were first married. I can't remember if we had a child in the car at that time or not. We were traveling north for Christmas, snow-covered roads. You couldn't see any lines, just white. Okay, no, it was before Lindsay, because we were in the van. And the van spun out of control, and it just started doing donuts down the highway. And all of a sudden, it like straightened up, and we're just going again. And we're both like in shock, like, what just happened, you know? Uh, that was kind of terrifying, but it just seemed like something out of the ordinary that happened, because we were totally out of control. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's way before Tesla, okay? So here's a question. Can angels die? One commentator writes this. I've got killed. <laughs> Good answer, Kath. One commentator writes this. Angels are not subject to death or any form of extinction. Therefore, they do not decrease in number. Now, he just says that. No scripture. Just makes the statement. In other words, just believe me, okay? Why didn't he give us any scripture to prove his point? 
If you, you know, when people tell you things about the Bible, but they don't back it up with Scripture, just say, where's that in the Bible? Okay, and see if, you, if they don't know, then don't believe anything they have to say about it. Okay, look at Psalms 82, 6 and 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is speaking of Yahweh's divine counsel, which are a form of angel. And he says, you're going to die. Now, Brenton uses angels in his 1851 translation of the Septuagint into English in Deuteronomy 32.8. He says, when the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. Now, this is a Septuagint translation. Most translations have sons of God, but they're trying to make sure that we understand that sons of God are supernatural here. Okay? So the Septuagint, the Greek phrase here is angelon theo, and it's translated angels of God. And this interpretive phrase is found in nearly all of the extant Septuagint manuscripts. However, several earlier manuscripts have instead weon theo, which is sons of God. So this is a literal rendering of the Hebrew phrase bene Elohim, sons of God, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls copies of Deuteronomy 32.8. So the Septuagint translators plainly understood that the sons of God, the bene Elohim, spoken of here and elsewhere in Scripture, are spirit beings, and that's why they translated it angel so there wouldn't be any confusion about that. They want to clarify the meaning. And since some of these sons of God would die like men, it seems to me that angels can die. But Yeshua said in Luke 20, 35-36, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. Hmm. So which is it? Can they die or can't they die? Now remember the context here. He is speaking of physically dead people that are spiritually alive. So the death that he speaks of here is referring to really any kind of death. They can't die. They already died physically, so they can't die physically and they can't die spiritually. Resurrection brings believers into a state where they can never again experience death which is to say we can never be separated from Yahweh. This is true of us now. If you've trusted Christ, you're in this state. You will die physically if you're physically alive, but these people are already dead, so they couldn't die at all. But we will never die spiritually. Well, how come angels can die, but believers can't? And the question we need to ask is, do we need to worry about getting kicked out of heaven? No, we'll talk about this more in a minute, so just kind of hang on to that thought. Yeshua says we will be like angels in heaven and equal to angels and our sons of God. And from all we've looked at, that sounds pretty cool, right? I like what I've seen so far of angels. And then we get to what Peter has to say about them, which doesn't make me so happy. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Hell's a bad translation there. 
and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the judgment. Until the judgment. Okay, so it seems that angels can and did sin. Would you agree with me so far? Huh? You with me? Jude in the parallel text says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels, they're created perfectly. They're created good. They were just and they were pure. And all the angels were created as ministering spirits, according to Hebrews 1.14. And they all are dwelling with Yahweh in heaven. There's no sin in them as God created them. They had as their first estate, that is, their habitation was heaven. They're dwelling in the presence of Yahweh. But then... They sinned, and they lost their first estate. They lost their dwelling in heaven. They lost that habitation, that eternal blessed condition that they would have had throughout eternity had they not sinned. Now, Adam Clark writes this. He says, one thing is certain. The angels who fell must have been in a state of probation, capable of either standing or falling as Adam was in paradise. That is a very common speculation. Okay, yeah, exactly. Thank you. I like what he says. One thing is certain. The angels must have been in a probationary state. In other words, God had the angels in probation. Okay, folks, during this time you can sin or not sin. Okay, then after the probation, he says, okay, time's up. You can't sin anymore. You missed your chance. I mean, basically, they're in a probation time, okay? And so that's why the angels sin. Again, very typical view. Where's the Scripture? All right? So what are Peter and Jude talking about? What was the sin of these angels? There's basically three views on this. The first view says, this is referring to one unique and special thing that we don't know anything about. (laughs) that's a good view right it's easy to come up with that view don't need any proof we don't know anything about this all right the problem is that view doesn't fit the context of jude because jude in this context is saying i want to bring you into remembrance of these things and he talked two other things he talks about they knew about okay sodom and gomorrah being one of them they're familiar with this so obviously this was something that they knew about that would jude would indicate that A second view is that we're dealing with the original fall of Satan and his angels. And they would give you Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Now, the problem with this view is, at the time of the writing, at the time that Jude is writing this, at the time Peter's writing this, where are those angels that he's talking about? They're kept in eternal bonds under the judgment waiting for the great day. Peter says they cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So if these refer to the fall of Satan and his angels, then and what's Paul talking about in Ephesians where he talks about the spiritual battle going on? 
He says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. These are all spiritual beings. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, in Paul and Jude's day, there was a spiritual battle going on with Satan and his demons. And Jude says, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, the word kept here is tereo. And here it's in the perfect tense, which means at a point in time, they were kept and they continue to be in that condition. The perfect tense describes the permanence of this keeping. And the word tereo is the same word used earlier in this verse where he says they did not stray. That's the same word, tereo. The angels did not stay where they belong, but God has put them, kept them in eternal chains. So it's a play on words. Tereo means to guard, to keep, to watch. In other words, God himself is guarding and keeping in custody these angels that he threw into Tartarus. Now, it then says they are in eternal bonds under darkness. This literally translates in everlasting imprisonment under the authority of darkness. We see the similar language in Peter. He says, if God didn't spare the angels of sin, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Hell here is the Greek word tartarao, and tartarao was a prison of the ancient Greek deities. It was a place of extreme torment. So that's the idea here. Uh, and I guess that would be similar to our view of hell. You know, that's So hell's not a, ever a good translation if you see it in the Bible, but again, here it does carry the idea that they're trying to convey of, of torture. He's got them locked up. They're being tormented. So Jew says that God reserved them for the judgment of the great day, This refers to the judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20. Satan and his demons are not in chains at the time of Jude's writing. So Jude can't be referring to the fall of Satan and his angels. It has to be some special, some important defection and rebellion among the angels that's recorded in the Bible somewhere. It had to be something that was so severe that God took the angels that did it and put them in chains So they're not going to do that again. All right? So what's he talking about? Well, the third view, which I believe is the correct view, is that Peter and Jude reflect an ancient Jewish and Christian understanding that identifies these fallen angels as the rebellious sons of God in Genesis 6. Now, we just looked at this briefly last week. I said we'd come back to it. This is an interesting text, and it's just most people just brief over it, don't even want to consider it, you know, because it's kind of mind-blowing. And some people make, they try to translate it as this is about humans and there's nothing divine in it. Well, it doesn't work that way, okay? When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, they saw the daughters of men were attractive. Here's these divine beings in heaven with God and they're looking down and they're saying, wow, those are some hot looking women down there. I mean, what, what are they doing checking out women on earth? They're called angels, though. <laughs> I guess that all, that's true. All the other angels are men. So they're like, hey, look at this. I like this, what we see down here. They're attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. I mean, now in the text, it doesn't 
give you the idea that they forced into this. They just went and picked out some wives, and the wives are like, happy to marry gods. You know, who wouldn't want to, you know? <laughs> then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children. So again, now, now they're not only marrying, they're having offspring. Sons of God here is B'nai Elohim. It is referring to supernatural beings. The Nephilim, the product of this hybrid relationship, are half men, half gods. You ever hear anything about this in history? You ever hear about these half men, half god beings? We all think it's just fiction. We all think it's just made up. There, I think all this stuff is based on reality, okay? Yeah, Jude's nonchalant reference to this rebellious angel suggests that his readers understood what he was talking about. Now, Robert Newman, he's analyzed the history of interpretation of Genesis 6 to show that the supernatural interpretation of the sons of God as being heavenly angelic beings, was virtually unanimous in the ancient world until the first century after Christ. So you go back and search all the writings, and everybody says these are supernatural beings until a century after Christ. Then we start changing our view on what these people, what, what is going on here. Okay, the term sons of God, B'nai Elohim in Hebrew, it's only found six times in the Hebrew. Twice here in Genesis, three times in Job, and once in Deuteronomy 32.8. We already looked at that. It's always used of divine beings. It's never used of humans. Okay? Humans are not called B'nai Elohim. Now, let's go back to Psalm 82 again. God has taken his place in the divine council. Yeah, go to... 1 Kings chapter 22, and you can, you can see a scene of the divine council where God's talking to the council members, all right? So he's in the council. It says, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So God's sitting there with all these divine beings, and he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So these divine council members were judging not righteously, not justly. They weren't doing what they should be doing. And so in verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. So normally, angels wouldn't die, but they sinned. They left heaven. They cohabitated with women. They produced a hybrid offspring. Now, from the writings of the Second Temple period, we see that they believed. Now, you know, people say, well, the Jews at this time believed this. The, Jew, the, only thing, the only way we know what anybody believed is what they wrote down, okay? Because no one went back and surveyed them and found out, what's, what's your view on this? So we're, when we talk about what they believe, we're talking about the writings that they left, okay? So if you look at the writings of the Second Temple period, we see that they believe that the reason that wickedness so permeates the earth was a result of three incidents, all right? So if you go back and you say, why is there so much wickedness on the earth? The answer we would get today is what? Adam, the fall of Adam. That's why men are wicked. Adam fell, we messed us all up, that's the end of it. And that's pretty much where everybody stops today. That's why we're wicked. They didn't stop there. They had two more. The second one was 
the sin of the watchers in Genesis 6. All right, and thirdly, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now, we're not going to get into Babel today. It's not part of our discussion, but let's look at this. In Genesis, we learn that the first man, Adam, he's created by God. He's brought into Eden, the dwelling place of God. So Adam's brought into the garden, into an intimate relationship with Yahweh and the divine counsel. So there's gods living in this garden. God and his counsel. God and these other gods are living there. Adam's brought into the garden. And he's walking with Yahweh. He dwelt in his presence. You know what happens next, right? Man is tempted and he sins. Now here's the cool thing. The book of Jubilees, again, a pseudopicker for work, says that Adam was in the garden seven years before he sinned. Like, good job, Adam. I got the text in Scripture that sounds like the next day he went out and sinned. Okay? That makes me feel a little better. I mean, okay, the guy lasted seven years. Good job, buddy. <clears throat> All right? So what caused the man to sin? Well, people say, oh, it was a snake. Well, the text says it was a serpent who tempted Eve, and Revelation 12.9 says the serpent was Satan. But they weren't tempted by a snake. I think that in Genesis 3, we see one of the sons of God. This is a divine being. This is part of the divine council, one of the members, a watcher, if you will, a council member. He's tempting man because he wants man out of the garden. This is our place, okay? God created these gods, and they're all dwelling with God, and now he brings man in there, and they're like, nah, we don't like this guy. This is not right. We don't, well, I don't know why. I don't know, jealousy. For some reason, they didn't like men, and they wanted him out. God had made man vice-regent with him, and some of the watchers just weren't too happy about this. So what we have in Genesis 3 is a divine being, not an animal, a throne room guardian, a seraph, if you will, a serpentine being, one who was part of the divine council in Eden. He decides to deceive humanity. He says, if I can get this guy to sin, God will throw him out. I don't want him in here, so let's get God to throw him out. He wants humans removed from Eden, from Yahweh's counsel and family. Why? Well, why does he want them kicked out? I don't know, but I think the scriptures hint at pride and jealousy. I just don't like men. They want them out of their garden. Now, the pseudepigraphal work called The Life of Adam and Eve elaborates on the motive of the role of Satan in the fall of humankind. In chapter 16, it says this, And the Lord God was angry with me. This is Satan talking. And he banished me from my, and my angels from our glory. And on your account, we were expelled from our abodes into this world and hurled to the ground. He's blaming Adam, okay? It's your fault we got kicked out. No, you caused us to sin. It's your fault. Straight away, we were overcome with grief since we had been robbed of such great glory. And we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. And with guile, I cheated your wife. And through her action, caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as if I have been driven out of my glory. So this divine being, Satan, seems to have been jealous of man. So he says, I cheated your wife. I beguiled your wife and got her. You guys kicked out. You're out of the cosmic mountain. You're out of God. And that happened. He's kicked out of Eden. Man is put out. Now, that was... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, which book was it? I'm reading so many sewer pigraphers. Yeah, it's the life of Adam and Eve. 
And fascinating book, I'll tell you, good read. Uh, you know, you, 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 we read about Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden. Well, this is about Adam and Eve's story. And you read about the pain, the agony they're experiencing because they're separated from God. I mean, they're just literally tormented over this whole thing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So he gets them kicked out of the divine mountain. Now, to most Christians, this event in Genesis 3, that's it. That's the sole reason mankind is evil as they are. But to a second temple Hebrew, this is only one of the three events that caused men to be so sinful. And to them, the event in Genesis 3 is low on the list. Let me give you a quote from Michael Heiser, who has got a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages. And I think this is just a very powerful statement. He says 99%, that's quite a bit, of Second Temple Judaism, and he's referring to their documents, okay, believed that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked with what happened with Adam and Eve, But the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. So all, I mean, 99% of their writings said men are wicked because of what happened with the watchers. This is a big deal, people, okay? He says everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references... In intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers, everything. So he's saying, you search all the pseudepigraphal writings, you search all Second Temple documents, you got four references that disagree, everything else says it's because of the watchers. That's a big deal, a really big deal, because most Christians don't even know what happened in Genesis 6. They have no clue what even went on. But they're saying this is a really big deal. Now, before we look at the sin of the watchers, notice Yahweh's promise after the fall of Adam and Eve. Okay, he says in Genesis 3.50, this is the proto-evangelum. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So he's saying Eve's seed, a human being, will come and is going to fix, is going to repair what Adam had done. So a deliverer is going to come. Now it is my understanding that the gods understood this promise of a coming redeemer. This redeemer is going to be human. So the gods' next strategic move was an attempt to destroy the human race by genetically corrupting the human line so the Messiah could no longer come. All right, okay, guys, God's going to fix what we did. We were successful. Round one was successful. We got man kicked out. But now God's going to fix it. we got to try something else. Let's corrupt the whole human race. And then Messiah can't come through that because it'll be corrupted. All right, so we see this. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. They go unto them. They bear children. Sons of God in verse 2 and 4 are rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host also called watchers. Daniel calls them watchers. And they appear in the form of masculine, human-like creatures. These gods married women of the human race and thus violated the heavenly, earthly division that Yahweh had established. 
And the hybrid offspring of this abominable union was giants called Nephilim. And if you want to know where giants come from in the Bible, this is where they come from. And when David slew the giant, this was a Nephilim, okay, that he was fighting. And David, with his conquest later, wiped out the Nephilim, wiped out this race once and for all, I believe. <clears throat> so you got these mighty warriors, and boy, you read some of the pseudepigraphal work, and these guys are just bloodthirsty, and humans are feeding them and taking care of them, and they, they can't give them enough to eat, so they start eating humans and tearing people up, and it's just, it's a horrible thing, okay? It's a big mess. Now, Enoch, the book of Enoch, says that the flood was sent because of the watchers. Now, we wouldn't think that, right? Man screwed up, so God sent the flood. It was man's fault, right? But the voluntary sexual transgression of the women with the watchers was a violation of heaven and earth, which caused humans to share the blame. So the wickedness of men was their sexual union with the watchers. So, we have Satan corrupting man in the garden. Then we have the watchers, the sons of God, corrupting the gene pool with these hybrid beings. And we have Nephilim corrupting and destroying humans in Genesis 6. So the watchers were attempting to corrupt the human bloodline to stop the Messiah from being born. So the angels can and did sin. Okay, we on the same page there. Does anybody agree with that? I mean, that's what the text says, right? But here's what the text also says. We will be like the angels. Are you putting this two together? Uh-oh. Will we be able to sin in heaven? <clears throat> uh, he, this is a heated subject, so hang on. Buckle your seatbelts, okay? Listen, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's just walk through this logically. All right, God said you'd be like the angels. We know the angels sin. Does that mean we're going to be able to sin? Let's talk about it. Within the sphere of preterism, there's any kind of nonsense you can find, okay? That's obvious, all right? And I keep telling you over and over, just because somebody says they believe the Lord returned in AD 70 doesn't make them your brother. Some of these people have some whacked-out beliefs. They just happen to be smart enough to see that the Bible's clear that the Lord returned in AD 70, all right? But there's some who are saying that all sin ended in AD 70, okay? That's their teaching. All sin. Got that? And therefore, guess what? We don't sin today. Don't you wish? Huh? How do, how do you get away with this kind of teaching? How do you, how's anybody even entertain this for a second? Listen, in AD 70, Christ came to put an end to the sin and the death. Only for those who are in Him. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Yeshua. The Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. He used it in chapter 5, talking about man's fall. It's in the passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as an edict from the judge. Rather, it refers to the punishment. Okay, that's really important you understand it. So he's saying, there is therefore now no more punishment. And he's talking about eternal judgment, eternal damnation, separation from God. There is no more separation from God for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Hang on to that, people. No separation. That's over. You cannot be separated from God. 
Adam's sin is imputed to all. That's condemnation. That's spiritual death. That's why all men are born spiritually dead, because we, we're bearing the penalty. But for those who trust Christ, the punishment of Adam's sin, spiritual death, is removed. All right? Katakrama, gone. No more punishment for those in Christ. No more separation for those in Christ. We are in Christ. That is a permanent union. Please hang on to that. The sin of Adam that brought death is removed in Christ. And we're no longer subject to spiritual death in Christ. We have everlasting life. Okay? How long do you think everlasting life would last? Pretty long time. Everlasting, maybe. All right. I think we understand that sin is missing the mark, right? And let's face it. We all miss the mark. And I'm sad to say I think we always will. And... Thank Yahweh that we have been given Christ's righteousness. Positionally, we stand in Christ. We have His righteousness. Now, a misunderstanding of what Scripture is saying has caused many believers to doubt and to question their salvation. The mistranslation of this verse, in case in point, has caused a lot of heartache. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if you're misreading this, this can cause you guilt. This can cause you doubt. Right? Paul has taught that all who have trusted Christ have died in union with Him. Back up in chapter 6, we were buried with, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we're resurrected with Christ. Okay? The one who has died has been set free from sin. So now this verse says you're set free, but you still sin. Uh oh. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Because if I died, I'd be free from it, right? No, no, no. This verse is not teaching that Christians are free from sin, not at all. What Paul says here is the one who has died in Christ is justified from the sin, the sin of Adam. The Greek word translated here, set free, dikaiao, should be translated justified. The one who has died has been justified from the sin, the sin of Adam. We're set free from that. We have the, that punishment's no more. But, beyond A.D. 70, men still sin. Hang on to this one. Christians still sin. Right? Now, most believers, a whole, whole, long, a whole lot of most, think that we will be free from our sinful tendencies once we get to heaven. Right? Would you agree? I mean, heaven is a sin-free state, right? That's what everybody believes. Again, Scripture. <laughs> now, to support a sin-free state, if you're a futurist, you have a verse. Okay? So if you don't like what I'm telling you, go back to futurism, and then you have a verse to cling to, okay? Because the futurists will cling to this verse in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are now God's children. Now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. So this verse is talking about what took place at the Parsia. Believers are like Him. In other words, we obtained His righteousness positionally. But yet, we still sin. So we can't really use this verse because right now we're, no, we're not sin-free. So, And the Parsia has come. We know that we are like Him right now. So as a preterist, 
What verses would you use to support a sin-free state in heaven? I mean, we all seem to assume that heaven will be a sin-free zone. But do the scriptures support that? I'm asking, okay? I'm asking. I'm, going, I'm walking through this out loud, okay? Let me tell you my position. And you tell me where I'm wrong. My position is that man's nature is prone to sin. Okay? I think when Yahweh gives us a command, it's just, you're just prone to break it. People like to break commands, all right? And the sure way to get somebody to do something is put up a sign, don't do this. You know, and then they're just going to do it. Now, many think that man's sinful nature is a result of Adam's fall, right? I don't think so. Katakrama came as a result of the fall. Punishment came as a result of the fall. Punishment was passed on to everybody because of that. But I believe that man, nature, was always sinful. If man's sinful nature is a result of the fall, why did Adam sin? Can't be a result of his fall because he hadn't fallen yet. But why did Adam sin? Just something about man. All right? And let me ask you, as a believer in Christ, do you still sin? Let me ask your spouse. Mm Mm-hmm. Caitlin, what do you say? (laughs) Sure you do. We all do. Listen, some more than others. Some way more than others. I think as humans, that's what we struggle with. That's part of our struggle to overcome in this life, to, to stop sinning and walk in a holy manner. So, when we get to heaven, I kind of doubt that we will instantly be set free, sin-free. Because sin seems innate to humanity. As preterists, we believe that we are in Christ. So, what changes when we die? Now, let me stress here. This is my opinion based on what I see in Scripture. I'm open to discuss this. If you can prove me wrong, I would be grateful. Okay? I don't like being outside the mainstream. It just seems like I constantly end up there. (laughs) My wife says, whatever. I don't like being there. I just can't help but be there because if you follow the truth, you end up outside the mainstream. All right? Here's what I'm thinking. I think human nature is sinful. I don't think I'm going to get any argument from anybody on that part, okay? Adam was sinful. God said, I'll start over with Israel. Israel was sinful. Christians are sinful. Think with me on this, please. If receiving eternal life, if receiving the very righteousness of Christ, if becoming citizens of the kingdom of God, if becoming part of the body of Christ hasn't made us sinless, why would physical death do that? See, I don't really think that we undergo a synectomy at physical death. You die and God said, poof, you're all, no more of that stuff from that guy. We're going to take care of that right now. And, you, and don't get even into the thing of, well, it's the body that's sinful. Then you're getting into Gnosticism, okay? We don't get in, let's not go there, all right? But here's the problem. I don't see that there is another work of Yahweh that we partake of at death. I mean, is there something more that has to be done to fit us for heaven? And if so, 
Where is it talked about in Scripture? Adam was under the law of sin and death. When he sinned, he died. We, believers, we are not under that law. Okay? Romans 8.2 The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Yeshua from the law of sin and death. Paul says that the Torah of the Spirit has set you free. This is talking of setting slaves free. This is Exodus language. Those in Christ are brought out of Egypt of sin and death and made citizens of the kingdom of God. We still sin, but death is not the result of our sin because we died in Christ and our sin debt is paid in full. Adam sinned, he died. We, that not for us. We're in Christ. We sin, it's covered. Christ took care of all of our sin, past, present, future. I think that for Yahweh to make us sinless in heaven would be to remove our volition. Okay? I also think that if sin is possible in heaven, and I'm going to say more than that, I know it's possible because the angels did it. Okay? If it's possible in heaven, then Yahweh will be more honored and glorified when we live holy as opposed to taking away our sin and making us have no opportunity to sin. That said, I think that heaven will be a very different life than we know it here and now. I think we're going to have a spiritual body that is capable of some amazing things. Can't wait to test it, give it on a test run, okay? Um, As we leave the physical realm and we move into the unhindered presence of Yahweh, I think we're going to see sin for what it is. And I think it will horrify us. We'll understand the death that Christ died. We'll have no desire to sin in the presence of the glory of God. Now some angels, some sons of God, sinned, and because of that, they were thrown out of heaven. Although we may sin in heaven, we'll never be thrown out. Christ's blood covers us here and now. Okay, it's like if you sin on earth, that's okay, but you can't do it in heaven or you get kicked out. No, we're covered by the blood. We're righteous as Christ. We're never going to be thrown out. The angels did not have the righteousness of Christ. Okay? They were never given eternal life. They never trusted Christ. We are in union with Christ. Angels never were. I think that if someone does sin in heaven, that our Heavenly Father will discipline them. It won't be like today. It'll be a more expedient discipline because we sin. Okay, we're going to get out of line probably and God's going to deal with us. So either God will discipline us or maybe somebody higher in rank than us will discipline us. Okay, hey, that, you, that's, that guy's under your control. Take care of that. All right, straighten that out. Now, there are ranks of angels. There's authority within angels. I think there will be within us. Just, we're going to be like the angels. They have higher angels and work your way right down. All right? Now, let me give you one more paragraph to close with, okay? Hang on to this, please. If you got nothing else or if everything else made you mad, just hang on to this, okay? (laughs) If this view bothers you, 
Maybe it's because you are too lax in your spiritual discipline here and now, and you sin way too often. And you're hoping, I know I'm a mess now, but it's too hard to fight sin, so I just give way to it, and I let it do its thing, but someday I'll get to heaven, and I won't have to fight anymore, I can just relax, and I'll be sin-free. And my question to you would be this. Why don't you get serious about dealing with your sin right now? Why not work on abiding in Christ and being controlled by the Spirit and walking in holiness right now? Yahweh is holy. He has called us to be holy now because He is holy. What if our status or position in heaven is determined by how we live and what we do here. I think there will be positions in heaven. I think there will be status. I think there'll be, you know, janitors in heaven and there'll be rulers in heaven. We're going to have all, it's, I really believe it's, it's like this world. That's why God made this world the way it is, because He's fashioning it after another world. His divine realm. But what if our status, our position there is determined by how we live? Your sin won't get you kicked out of heaven. You're getting in. Your sin now won't get you kicked out or stop you from going. But when you go, your life lived here might just have a big effect on what you do for eternity. Just think on this. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I just... Pray that we'd be Bereans, Father. We wouldn't accept this, what I'm saying today. We wouldn't reject it. We'd study it out to see if it's so. Lord, this goes against, I know, common belief of the day. But the only thing we need to care about, is it true, is it right? Give us a heart, Lord, to dig and search and find out what the Scriptures actually say, not what men say they say. Thank you, Lord, for your great privilege. I thank you, Father, that though we sin. You've taken care of it. Every bit of it is under the blood of Christ. May we come to hate it here and now, Lord, that we would walk in holiness before you day in and day out, here and now. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I'm afraid to look at my phone. Okay, John asks, question, is it possible? Well, that's a, that opens up the floodgate there, okay? <laughs> that in order to attain a human body status, the fallen ones waited for a male who was living on earth to die, and at that moment captured the vacant body. Well, the pseudepigraphal work tells us that this, this fall that happened on Mount Hermon, when these angels came down, there was 200 of them. So they had to be looking for 200 bodies. I don't know that, you know, women are going to be a tra- Oh, you just married that old dead, you took that old dead guy's body? I'm not real interested in that. You know, you don't look much like a god to me, okay? These were gods, you know, not old dead people. So I, I, I don't see it as that, but I mean, again, I... Yeah, he, well, he says, I know they were huge in size later. 
But maybe the size change came through the corrupted offspring. No, the size change came from the, the birth of these gods with humans. They were hybrids. They were half God, half man. Okay? And they were giants. I look forward to your thoughts. <laughs> well, that's, you know, again, I, these were gods. They came down. The pseudopigrapher work tells us 200 of them came down on Mount Hermon. That's where the transgression happened. They took on these women. They married them. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess, you know, they're snatching up body, dead, dead people's bodies and using them. I just, I don't see that. When the angels appeared, they got to look around. I, I can't show up until someone dies. You know, I can jump in their body. They don't seem to be possessed. They just seem that this is a manifestation of this angelic being. They have spirit bodies. That's, again, that's all, that's how I understand it, okay? So, John, I don't know. Okay, no real question there. Thank you for sharing the study today. My sister watched with me. She wants a good study Bible. What Bible could you recommend? Her ESV is too small in print. Um, <clears throat> you know, a study, a study Bible is not something I'm real hep on because you get to think that that opinion in there is part of the Bible. I mean, you know, because this is in my Bible, you know. I, I like to have extra book outside the Bible, you know, go to things. I think the New International uh, the New International Cultural Background Study Bible is one of the best resources out there for helping you get an idea on what's culturally going on, which is a tremendous help. And then get some language studies if you want to dig into the language. Um, ESORD is an excellent program. It's free. Now, you can add, you can buy different books and Bibles to put in there, but if you want to learn to search the Bible, ESORD is a free resource, and it's it's excellent. It really is. You can click on a, a Greek or Hebrew word, and it'll show you every time that's used throughout the Bible, show you the meaning of it. You know, you can find a lot of information with that free resource. But as far as the study Bible, other than the cultural background study Bible, um, I, yeah, and that's not a Bible, okay? It's just a, it's a reference tool. Now, I have it on my phone, so when I'm reading on my phone, and I have a question about something, I tap on it, and it goes right into that Bible, and it tells me cultural, here's what, you know, you get, you read something weird, and you're like, why, what is this about, you know, and it gives you the culture of it, and it goes back into, you know, ancient languages and cultures, and explains things, and it gets heavy sometimes, but it's a good resource, okay? Okay, uh, this is... All right, um, this is from Gary and Chris and PA. He says, good morning, Dave. Very informative today. Regarding the sons of God in Genesis taking wives, I always thought that the angels were all created at once and were not created to multiply or procreate. I agree. So it's difficult to imagine how they could be created with male reproductive organs to, <laughs> to reproduce. I, yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Okay, I don't, I don't understand it either, but this is what the text tells us. I'm not saying I do not believe it. It's just hard to imagine that. 
I have, I have read Enoch also. Very interesting. As you know, the sons of God appear before and after the flood also so mysterious. Yes, they do appear before and after. And some people, you know, question why. Uh, I, my view is I think there was a second incursion. Again, that's, that's speculation. Uh, speculation. Let me make that clear, okay? <laughs> that's, I'm, that's why I'm speculating. I don't have Scripture, right? There are elect angels in Scripture, so there must have been non-elect angels that fell. Thoughts? Uh, that, that's, a good, that's a good question, Chris. Um, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Again, that, maybe that's where they're getting this idea of a probationary period. You know, and we, I just, I don't see that from Scripture that they had a probation. Yeah, angels, angels in training. If you can't make it, you're kicked out. From Norm. Norm says, we don't know that plan. I believe it will be so incredible that seeing sin for what it is will greatly diminish our appetite for it. I agree with you there, Norm. I really think we're going to see things more, much more clearly. It's going to be something we're not so enjoyable. It, we're going to detest it. I will have to be, it will have to be everlasting life to continue pursue the righteousness we've been given. Yeah, that's. Um, someone asked, how can Yahweh be in the presence of sin? He can be, you know, and the Bible says, you know, he can't look on sin. The idea is he can't look on it with the light. It's not that he can't look at it. Okay, God can do anything, and obviously. These angels were in heaven and they sinned. So obviously God was in the presence of sin. Because they Yeah, and again, we sin all the time. And where's God? He's not looking? He's here. We are the temple of God. So if we're sinning, God's seeing it. And that's what boy, if we could get a handle on that. You know, I, I guess we just rationalize. Well, God understands. No, he doesn't. He's called you to be holy. Okay, and sin. Here's the thing: we have to really get our head wrapped around. Sin is destructive. Sin in any form is not going to help you. It's not going to benefit you. It's not going to do anything good for you. It's going to ruin your life. It's built in. There's destruction with it. Okay. Where can we read the life of Adam and Eve? Uh, You could pick up a copy online. I'm sure it's online. You probably don't even have to buy it. Just go on there and, you know, do a search for the life of Adam and Eve. It's a pseudopicker for work. You'll find it on there. I know I, I downloaded into um, my books that, you know, you can download from Amazon, you know, and I just found it on there. I don't, I don't remember if I paid for it or not. If I did, it wasn't much. And, you know, just put it in there and you can read it. Okay. Dave and Barb, welcome. Glad you're watching us. Appreciate you being with us. Some reason they said they can't get into the chat. Are they going through live stream? I mean, the chat is in live stream, so you have to go through live stream to get involved in the chat. Um, I'm not sure who this is from. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 about the head covering says because of the angels. Could this be to keep the angels from desiring earthly women? Again, I think that's exactly what that text is part about. You know, keep your head covered. This is about sexuality because of the angels, he says. I mean, these guys are having problems up there with you women, okay? So keep it covered up, women. Uh, 
Again, this is some mind-blowing stuff, all right? These are divine beings lusting after human women. <laughs> um, Shan says, when did these angels that sinned die? Um, they died at the judgment. They were reserved till the judgment of AD 70. The judgment took place there. God destroyed all these evil beings, all that were opposed to Him at that time in AD 70. Uh, don't know who this is. The Cultural Study Bible is really good, and I'm on my second round, that is the reason why I can't read it all within a year. Okay, yeah, I get that. That's the thing. If you're stopping, and, and listen, that's fine, okay? There's no saying you got to read it in a year, you're kicked out of Christianity, all right? The thing is, you better set a goal, or because some will be on the 10-year plan, you know? I read a verse a day. No, this is not our daily bread. We're, we're trying to get in and understand it, so... But I, I, yeah, I have no problem. And I know people struggle with it. I've had people call me and say, look, I'm having struggle getting through in a year because I keep getting sidetracked and studying. I'm like, nothing wrong with that. If you're one of those people, dig, set a little more time aside because you'll probably need it. I have to fight it because I want to get through every year. And, you know, I, but I come across something and I'm like, ah, I start digging and it's like, oh boy, two hours later. Now I can afford to do that, of course, but everybody can't. Well, years ago, I, I, Reveal that I was in year seven of a five-year plan. So I'm saying you're opening, you're talking about uh, what we're going to do in heaven and sit around and playing harps. Jeff's going to be playing drums. <laughs> I hope hey, that. I think we'll probably have a music in heaven. But I thought Satan was the instrument guy. <laughs> Uh, Doug says, Arthur Pink ascribed our desire for sin to creature, angels and men, mutability or subject to change. Only God cannot change. And that's the thing. I just, you know, this is, will I be who I am if God changes my, my makeup so I no longer have any desire to sin? I can not sin right now. Let me tell you that, people, Okay. I mean, so far, it's been up since six, so okay. I haven't sinned yet, okay? I'm sure. Ask my wife. Ask my wife, okay? See, that I think we, you know, we think everything we do, I know what sin is, and I know when I sin, okay? I got the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, and I know when I sin. But, I, you know, I'm not, everything is not sin that I do, and I've been doing so good so far today. <laughs> <laughs> no that's a that's a fact i'm not bragging i'm not bragging you're gonna make me sin here <laughs> but if i do sin i can just say lord the woman you gave me <laughs> i gotta blame it on somebody else right jeff um, so, one i guess counter argument so the angel sinned in heaven and then christ came and changed all that is it possible that there is no more sin in heaven because that's what Christ came to change, to make us new creatures, to defeat it. To okay, again, that's possible. Where's the scripture that would say something, you know, that Christ well, changed? Know, it doesn't talk about heaven after that, so we don't really Right, know. so we, again, you we don't know. You assume that his change was everywhere. Again, again, I'm just going from rational thinking, you know, this is who I am. I'm going to be this. I'm not going to, God is not going to 
uh, this synectomy thing, like, okay, will I be a different person then? You know, because this is who we are. And again, I really think there's a problem that we think we cannot be victorious over sin here and now, when I think we can. So how much more victorious can we be in heaven? We just, I think, t- take sin way too lightly. Garrett, did you have a question back there for someone? No, I was going to tell you Dad's had his hand up for now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did one. It, I don't remember what you, the verse, Jubilees 3.9, talking about bringing them into Eden, Adam and Eve. Okay. But I didn't know that it said we. Who was he talking to? We who? Right. Well, we, and most people would say that's the Trinity. I think that's the divine council. You know, there's a, that's the whole thing. You know, the we there. Let's, let us make God in our image, Genesis 1, after our likeness. Most people say, well, that's the Trinity. I think it's the divine council. And again, if, you, if you're not up on speed of this divine council thing, go into, you know, go to our website, go to the studies page. It's got a whole section down there near the bottom on it. Go to 2 Kings. Uh, chapter 20, no, 1 Kings 22, and the bottom half of the chapter, you see the divine council. They're talking to each other. Hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this guy to fall? What's gonna, and one guy says, I'll try this. I'll, I'll do this. I'll be a lying spirit. Okay, that sounds good. Go do it. I mean, it's amazing things that you are in the Bible that we somehow read over and don't even think about.